Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this evening, but I will begin reading at verse 11, 7 to set the context. Uh, we come to the end of the body of the book. Uh, next week will be Lord's Supper, and then the week after will be the conclusion, the epilogue um, of the book. Uh, but today we look at how eerie death is or how judgmental death is. Uh, so we'll begin reading at verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Well, the sun and the light, the moon and stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets, and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bull is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the, the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Amen. Well, let us pray. Thank you, O God, for how you prepare your people for the day of death that comes. Thank you, O God, that we go to that day. Even though we suffer uh, the effects of sin in this world, even though we feel the, the effects of death in this world already, and even though we shall pass through that river of death, O God, Help us to do so knowing that we are in Christ. Help us do so, O God, knowing that we are redeemed in him. Help us do so, O God, knowing that death simply is a, path, a pathway from this life into the next. And thank you for those in Christ that we know that we shall pass into paradise. We shall pass into eternal life. And we're thankful, O God, even that one day body and soul shall be reunited. We know that those who die not in Christ, who die in their sin, it shall be a, day, a great day of darkness. And so we pray, O oh God, that we would see what the preacher has for us this night when it comes to death. May we ponder it, may we consider it, may we not shrink back from it, O oh God, but may we realize and see what we need to learn from its coming. And so we know, O oh God, we need your grace, we need your mercy, and we need your spirit uh, to understand what is going on in this difficult text. We know the, the perhaps the overarching theme, but to see how it all, all fits together, we need your spirit. So we pray, O oh God, that you'd work in the hearts of your people this day. Help us to know the nearness of our creator in life and death. And we pray, O oh God, that if any here today do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls. And in all things, O oh God, we do pray that you be glorified. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when I was learning about the book of Ecclesiastes during my time at seminary, my professor said, as a pastor, you need to prepare your people for coming death. It's not typically a topic we like to talk about, but Ecclesiastes has shattered that for us because we talk about it a lot 
throughout this book. Death is coming. Death is the great leveler. Death is the reality that every single person has to face in this world. Now, as the redeemed, as those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't need to fear death's sting, but we will still have to pass through the river of death. All will die, but will one die in the Lord or will they die in their sin? Because the reality is individual death is a type of cosmic judgment. Individual death is a mini judgment. And I think that is vividly described here at the end of the book. Yes, there is that coming great, uh, great cosmic day, but we kind of sort of see and experience that, not yet, but we will experience that when we pass. It is a type or mini sort of judgment. And perhaps you're like, that's absurd, Mike. Well, that's the main point of the book, right? Absurdity, absurdities, enigmas of enigmas. There's inconsistency in this fallen world in which we live in. And the final section really is about what we do when death looms. And he kind of gave us two overarching commands. One, rejoice when it's good. When there's good things in life, rejoice. God as the creator has given us good blessings. Don't make them and use them for sin. But if God gives good things, we ought to appreciate those things. Enjoy it because there's going to be dark days that do come. So it's a good thing to rejoice in those things. But also remember, you're going to die. Remember that death is the great leveler. Those are the two key things we've seen repeated throughout the book. Rejoice is nothing better for man than to enjoy the, all the good of his labor, all the fruit of his labor. It is a gift that God gives, and also death is coming. I think what he wants us to see here in this section is how fearful death is. That is the problem, isn't it? Death really is a terrifying thing. It is very scary for those who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, not so much of what death is, although that is scary, but also what awaits them after death, what awaits them in the coming after this life. It is a terrifying thing, and they must consider that. The same thing, though, but not the same thing, but as far as the people of God is concerned, death can still be a fearful thing for those in Christ. Not that we fear where we go after we die, but how we die. We're all a little worried about that, how it's going to happen, the pain that we will endure when we die, and even the effects that lead up to death. It is, in a lot of ways, a mini sort of judgment. And that's what the preacher wants us to see here in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. He wants us to remember our Creator when we are young and when we are about to die. Remember. Last time we saw rejoice, he comes to the end of the book, rejoice when, de when death looms. And today, remember now your creator when death looms. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, remember your creator in life, verses one through five. And secondly, remember your creator in death, verses six through eight. Although spoiler alert, it's all about death, but I had to structure it somehow. Remember your creator in life and remember your creator in death. Let's first look at remember your creator in life in verses 1 through 5. And notice in verse 1, we see the charge to remember the creator before the difficult days come. So again, two overarching commands, rejoice and remember. And he says in verse 1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. He changes his tune to focus on the one who is the creator and the one uh, who's uh, the way in which we ought to see the world. Remembering is not just an intellectual activity, but remembrance ought to be the thing that orders one's life. And that is, God is the creator, 
We are the creature. Throughout the book, he's identified who God is, or he's mentioned the, the name God, and certainly he is under the old covenant. I believe it's Solomon who writes this book. But here he identifies explicitly who God is, namely the one who created all things. And throughout the book, we've seen how God is the one who upholds all things. And he wants us to see here that we ought to remember him. We ought to recognize who he is. We ought to recognize that one of the key problems in the world is that man has denied his creator, right? Romans chapter one. It is not that man doesn't know the truth. It's that man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, right? They exchanged the glory of God for the creature. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. You see, when it comes to the idea of worldview, there's really only two, the creator and the fallen creature. What God has made, God has created this world and said that it was good. God upholds all things. God manifests and shows his eternal power and wisdom in this world. Nature leaves man without excuse before God most high. So there is the truth of God's revealing in general revelation. And then there's man's corruption of that. Man worships the creature rather than the creator. And so the doctrine of creation is very important for us, not for apologetics, but for us when it comes to the realities of this world and when it comes to all sorts of types of doctrines. A recognition that God is the creator and we are the creature is absolutely vital. And so when he says here, remember now your creator, life is not about you. The meaning of life is found in this one who is the creator. And that's comforting. Because in a world full of perplexity and absurdity, it's nice to be reminded there's a God who upholds all things. Who can make straight what he has made crooked, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And so the doctrine of creation is important. Remember now your creator. The fact that God is creator should be something that permeates one's life decisions. But man has sinned and fallen short. Man does not worship the creator man does not remember the creator that's why we need a redeemer and if you're in the lord jesus christ we see the world through the one who is the redeemer but as we've been redeemed hopefully we read god's word and realize the one who redeems us is the one who created the world as well that the one who is the creator who is holy other he is the one who saves his fallen creature and thankfully, dear brethren, we as God's people walk through this life with that comfort. But the preacher wants us to be drawn in. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. He has made all things, Eleven five. He upholds all things, chapter 3. In chapter 6, 10, he says, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. You're the man, not God. And he cannot, man cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. We don't control anything. You know how much control you have in this world? This much. I'm actually wanting you to see the little small zero there. That's how much we have in this world. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God is in control of all things as the creator and upholder and driving all things toward its end, namely for his glory. And he'll be glorified in the manifestation of his mercy towards sinners. And he'll be glorified in the manifestation of his justice uh, towards sinners who have not been redeemed 
in Christ. His mercy to the saints, his justice to those who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's perhaps what he's trying to draw our attention to here. Remember now before you pass away. And so he says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And we saw last time that just because he refers to young man doesn't mean older people need to tune out. What he wants us to highlight here is that we ought to remember our creator and have a strong foundation starting now. Yes, it would be good if someone is young and believes on Christ early and has a strong foundation as they walk this life. They'll have a great aid in times of trial at an early age. But if someone is converted later and saved later and needs to learn later, that's fine too. But we must remember difficult days come. And so as difficult days, before difficult, difficult days come, what is one's foundation? What is one's strength? What is one's aid in those difficult days? Because let's be honest, whether one acknowledges the creator or not, difficult days come. Difficult days happen to every person on this planet. But thankfully, the redeemed, those in Christ, have an anchor. Those redeemed in Christ have a near high priest. They have one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. And as we just read in Ecclesiastes 9, he, or sorry, Ecclesiastes Acts 9, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ knows our needs. Christ knows our trials. And Christ has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. That doesn't mean difficult days are not coming. And certainly difficult days could be connected with dark days, death days, as we saw last time, live while you can, that difficult times do come. So it's best to have that foundation before they do. And then also the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. I have no pleasure in the years as they unfold. Old age brings about decay and brings about pain, and brings about sorrow. I know in our modern context, they say age is just a number, right? To some degree, that can be true. There are some stats out there that say if a seven-year-old does weight training, they can have uh, the same health as uh, the average 30-year-old. I don't know what that says about 30-year-olds, but it'd be pretty cool if I'm 70 and be able to pound out 225 on the bench press when I'm 75. That'd be pretty cool, but weights are good. Age is just a number, but sooner or later, we're going to die. Sooner or later, we're going to pass. We're going to turn 75 and then 80 and then 85 and 90. And sooner or later, we're going to have no pleasure in them because our bones grow old. There's death and decay. There's sadness in this world. When the years draw near, when you say, I have no pleasure in them. That's why he said beforehand, rejoice now. Rejoice in the good things that God gives because one day you're going to have no pleasure in any of those things. Death looms. Now, there are three ways we can take the poem in verses 2 through 5. Uh, either it does refer to old age and some of the old boys use different metaphors for different, or uh, view a lot of what's said here as metaphors for different organs. That could be in view. Others take it to refer to literal death. One's going to die. And others take it refer to final judgment. I think two and three are both, are, it's a both and with them. All could probably be involved here, but I think two and three are in view. Now, yeah, when, as one grows old, they're, they're going to die. 
but the reality is death for the one dying is like judgment. And that's what he wants us to see here, I think. And so then we see the eerie poem of it in verses two through five, the eerie poem of death. What shall death be like? Why should we remember our creator in the days of our youth? Before, I have no pleasure in them, certainly, but also notice it's going to be a dark day. Verse two. Well, the sun and the lights, the moon and the stars are not darkened. And the clouds, should, it should say, do return after the rain. I don't know what's going on there. Perhaps it's just an error, but it should say, do return after the rain. What he means is, it's raining. You think it's going to get better, but clouds just roll in again. You think the light's coming, but it's not. It's just going to be darkness forever. And a lot of this language here, the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, is really the reversal of creation, isn't it? And a lot of that language is used in the Bible to refer to judgment. The sun and the moon will be darkened. I mean, you see this in Amos and the prophets often speaking about coming judgment upon Israel. You see this in Joel 2. You see this in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. You see this uh, when it's talking about cosmic judgment that could come or even types of judgment. And so what he's saying here, he's taking these images of judgment, the reversal of the created order, and he's applying it to when someone passes. You see, the for the person dying, it may be that it's light out, but for them, their eyes are darkening. It may be that it's light out, but for them, it seems like the sun and the moon are covering everything up. It's kind of an eerie thing to think about when you consider what, when death looms. There's going to be no light after the storm. It's going to be simply the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are going to be darkened. But also, that day of death is going to be like an economy-destroying day. Verse 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3. Highlighting what was once a vibrant city is no longer. And so he says in verse 2, or verse, sorry, verses 3 and 4, I should say, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, referring to different parts of the economy, ones in the home, strong men, grinders, those waiting for men to return from war. Verse three, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, in the day when strong men cower in fear, it's kind of reversal of what you'd think, right? Strong men don't cower in fear. They typically stand up, but that death will be like a strong man cowering. Or when the grinders cease because they are few, the economy stops. Women with millstones is probably in view here. Women would typically engage in their task of making daily bread by grinding on these grindstones, but that has ceased. They are few. And perhaps they are few because they're going to be mourning in verse, verse 4, but we'll get to that in just a second. But the economy seems to stop. Again, we do see a reversal of the created blessings, right? God put the sun and the moon and the stars for seasons and days and signs. And God said to man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, when death comes, all that seems to cease. And those that look through windows grow dim. Those who are looking for their men to return from war, but they look in vain. There's not, they're not going to be saved. Nothing's, no one's coming home. That's what death is like, and it awaits every person. He continues scaring us uh, in verse 4. Death is also going to be a depopulating day. Dark day, 
economy-destroying day, and a depopulating day. He says in verse 4, when the doors are shut in the streets, very apocalyptic, so to speak, right? There's, there's no one there. And the sounds of grinding is low. Why is the sound of grinding low? It's because they are no more. And what's so very eerie, again, for the one dying, again, people might be engaging in their job, but you are passing away. It's going to be very, very eerie. He goes on to say then, again, using this depopulating image, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Perhaps the idea of the birds there are referring to birds of prey. Birds of prey, when death looms, are usually engaging in a frenzy. And that's probably the image that is here. They're engaging in a frenzy and their frenzy drowns out the ladies who are singing. That is what death shall be like. A dark day, an economy-destroying day, and a depopulating day. And again, the image is the one who is dying. Everything else will continue on. But for you, everything ceases. That's what death is. And then he goes on to say, it's going to be a terrifying day. Verse 5. And the opposites here highlight paralyzing fear. Also, they are afraid of the height and of terrors in the way. They can't look up. They can't go anywhere because everything is going to paralyze them with fear. And then also as well, there's going to be decay. There's going to be judgment. It's going to be unsightly. That's probably the image there of the almond tree when it blossoms. The almond tree is seen in Jeremiah 1 verses 9 through 12 as a sign of coming judgment, especially for the southern kingdom. The almond tree was not a tree you want to see at any time, right? We're all thrilled to see certain trees. Almond tree was not one of them. It was a sign, perhaps even the idea of almond tree or the way the word is used could carry the idea of disease or decay, something that is unsightly. It's going to be terrifying. And then the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. The idea is you grow old and you're not as quick as you used to be and organs begin to fail. The grasshopper was typically an image of one who was agile and swift. But what's the grasshopper here? He's a burden. He can't move. He's heavy. He can't run like he used to. That's unfortunately what happens when someone ages. The other sad thing, too, about when someone ages is their organs fail. The language there, desire, fails. It's a play on the word caperberry, and a caperberry was an aphrodisiac. And so what he's saying here is a specific organ does not work anymore for a male. And that certainly implies that all organs no longer work anymore. That's what death shall be like when it comes. That's what death shall be like when it approaches. It shall be a terrifying day, a depopulating type of day, an industry-destroying day, and a very dark day. It's meant to cause us to stop and think. That's its purpose. What a very scary part of scripture. I don't know, reading that. Have you ever read anything quite like that in God's word? I mean, that's its point, to cause us to stop and consider death as it looms. And then he says in verse 5, For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. All these things are what it would be like for the one dying, but everything else continues. And when that one dies and returns home, the mourners still go about their way. It's the sad thing to consider. Certainly, I've said this before in the book, so I don't feel bad saying it again. But after we pass, 
most of us will be forgotten after what the fifth generation, right? I mean, certainly our great, our kids will remember us. Our grandchildren will remember us. Our great grandchildren, maybe, but our great, great grandchildren. What about our great, great, great grandchildren? Our great, 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 great grandchildren. They probably won't even know who we are. That's a sad thing to think about, isn't it? But that's the reality that approaches. God has put eternity in our hearts. And man, when he passes, returns to his creator. And the language of eternity in our hearts was used in Ecclesiastes 3. God has made man in his image. And there is the sense of the divine, as Calvin says, there is what we see in the created order around us to leave man inexcusable. Natural law does not save, but it leaves man inexcusable before God most high. That's why we need special revelation. That's why we need supernatural grace in the work of the Holy Spirit. But when man passes, he goes to his eternal home. He returns to the creator. He returns uh, to the one who made him. And it's best to know him through faith and find forgiveness for our sins against him, rather than to reject him, continually suppress the truth, and die in sin. Now, what we've read here shall be what it's like for all, but thankfully, dear brethren, we have a near Christ and a near God as we approach that. Now, the application at this point I want to draw out is a near creator in life. He talks about death for the most part, but it's really to remember your creator in the days of your youth, while you still live, remember. And one comforting thing that we can see is that in a life filled with absurdity and enigma and perplexity is that God gives us assurance in his word about who he is. He has created the world. He has redeemed his saints and he upholds all things. And all things are moving for his purposes as the potentate of time. As he says in Ecclesiastes 3, uh, there is a, a, to, a time every purpose. I always get it mixed up. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. How often has he said throughout the book, who can find out the work of God from beginning to end? We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know the way in which we're going to die. We don't know the pain we're going to incur as we make our way there. But we can be certain that God is moving all things for his purposes and for our good. That ought to be a comfort and encouragement as we are inevitably going to face difficult and dark days. His decrees are being executed as he moves all things toward its end without being moved himself, but he moves all things as he operates in time and space for his glory and for our good. Ecclesiastes is highly underrated when it comes to that idea of providence, when it comes to the idea of creation, but also gives us comfort and helps explain why the world is the way it is, but also gives us comfort that we can call upon one who helps us, even though the world is the way it is. There is a creator, there is a redeemer, there is a providential upholder of all things, and God's people have a near God in life. Hymn 26, stanza one, our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. 
Brethren, you're going to face enigmas and perplexity in this world. Know that as you remember your creator, know that you have a near creator and you have a near Christ and redeemer because of his goodness towards us. So that's remember your creator in life. Let's then look secondly at remember your creator in death. Verses six and seven, kind of this quick sort of succession before, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. And perhaps a silver cord here is a metaphor for life and perhaps it's connected with the bowl. And as the cord is broken, the bowl shatters. Highlights that one's life is quickly taken. And the picture image highlights how fragile we really are, right? The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being, and the day in which we die is God's timing for us to die. Our life is very fragile, and that's the image that we see here. We're like a pitcher shattered at the fountain. One day, quickly, we'll pass from this life into the next or the wheel broken at the well, the source of water, all those things are taken away. Man's life is removed from him. He's fragile. He is destroyed. Remember your creator before you die. Remember your creator before the difficult days and you're going to die. And remember your creator before you die. And then because the, the fate of man is verse seven, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it man is made up of body and soul material and immaterial and when man dies his body goes into the grave and his soul goes back to the creator one day there shall be a day of resurrection when body and soul are reunited but when we die before christ comes back if we die before christ comes back body and soul shall be separated dust into the ground and spirit to God. And what we see here is part of the curse from Genesis 3. Death is part of the wages of sin. Death is something that we still have to endure because the wages of sin is death. Now, thankfully, again, we don't have to fear death because we're in Christ Jesus, but we still have to go through that river. And the language of dust certainly highlights that for us. We cannot take all our vanities. We cannot take all our pleasures. We cannot take anything with us. He says as much in 515. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return. To go as he came, he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. That's why he says, enjoy it. Because we're not going to be able to take it away, take it with us, right? That's why he says there are times to enjoy good things in this world, not sinfully recognize the goodness of god as the creator but and the reason is because we're going to die <laughs> that's the point is that we're going to pass we're going to die we're going our bodies shall go into the grave and our souls shall be with god and this really is a reversal of genesis 2 7 in genesis 2 7 we see the breath of life breathed into adam the first man in 2.7, he says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
in him, we live and move and have our being. Kidner says the body will revert to its own elements and the breath of life was always God's to give and God's to take away. God's alone. And so when man passes, this is what shall happen. Now, what's interesting, if you remember all the way back in Ecclesiastes 3, there was a question that was asked when it comes to the reality of death. In chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, I said my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men. God tests them that they may see themselves are just like animals. What happens to the sons of men also happen to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. A man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the, uh, the dust, and all return to dust. But who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So I perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him up to see what will happen after him? On this side of heaven, we really, as we see someone pass, we really don't know what's going to happen, right? But God is saying here through the preacher, he's answering that question from three. Man, when he dies to dust, he shall return, but the spirit shall return to God. Answering that enigma, answering that vanity, answering that question, man's spirit shall return to God. Now, as our confession says, it highlights uh, uh, that the, the souls of the redeemed go to be with Christ in paradise. The souls of the wicked who do not believe go to hell. That's what our confession says. Henry says it goes to God as judge to give an account of itself to be lodged there. This makes death terrible to the wicked, whose souls go to God as an avenger and comfortable to the godly, whose souls go to God as a father, into whose hands they cheerfully commit them through a mediator out of whom sinners may justly dread to think of going to God. The spirits of those in Christ and the spirits of those not in Christ go into different places, but they all return to God to man's eternal home. And the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And how can he not say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Coming back to what he said at the beginning of his book, and remember, vanity is the idea of wind. You, you see it there, but you hear it, but you don't see it is probably a better way to say that. You, you grasp for it, but you don't really know what it is. Or what he's probably saying is absurdity, enigma, all is enigma. There's sin and inconsistency in a fallen world. All is vanity. What profit is there under the sun? Life does not always square with Proverbs. Life does not always go the way we wish it to go. And most of the times it does not go the way we wish it to go. We might supposedly do everything right, but we still might have calamity happen to us. That's why Ecclesiastes 1.11 says such a thing. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes. The earth abides forever. The sun rises and goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. It's just so mundane, isn't it? But one comes and one goes. 
Verse 9, that which is being is what will be, that which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And after all we've seen, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is a vanity. That is a vanity. That's striving after wind. It's a sad thing to wrestle with, but also very comforting. It helps explain to us why there are things that confuse us. And that ought to give us comfort in a world that is confusing. And we might never have explanations for why that thing is confusing. But some things are very, very clear. We have a near God. And we're going to get to the conclusion of the whole matter in two weeks' time. But notice it says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. I do believe it's Solomon who is the preacher. Some people don't. I do. And that's just fine. But if the wisest man of all can't make sense of everything that happens, that is encouraging to us. Even the one who had the greatest kingdom in Israel still had the enigmas and perplexities and sins that he had to deal with in this world. So in a world full of sadness, rejoice and remember. Rejoice and remember. Wisdom is rare, still pursue it. Remember, too, that when he says the preacher, it's not used often, but another time it is used is in 727. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason which the soul seeks, but I cannot find. One among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. What I think he's saying there is how rare wisdom really is it's because man is wicked and sinful and so in that remember your creator rejoice in your youth that's what he says henry gives an encouraging quote here he says the royal preacher's application of his sermon concerning the vanity of the world and everything in it you that are young flatter yourselves with expectations of great things from it but believe those who have tried it it yields no solid satisfaction to a soul Therefore, you may not be deceived by this vanity, nor too much disturbed by it. Remember your creator, and so guard yourselves against the mischiefs that arise from the vanity of the creature. Also, it is the royal physician's antidote against the particular diseases of youth, the love of mirth, and the indulgence of sensual pleasures, the vanity which childhood and youth are subject to. To prevent and cure this, remember thy creator. And you remember your creator through faith, a good comfort. And just because one is older does not mean they don't love mirth, they don't have the diseases of youth, and don't, have, uh, don't engage in indulgence. It's a good reminder for us all. Now, again, thankfully, brethren, we have a near creator in life, but we also have a near creator in death. That is the comfort for the people of God, isn't it? When we pass, we have God who walks with us all the way. And I think that's the, the language that Paul uses and emphasizes in 2 Corinthians 5. Certainly 1 Corinthians 15 is the great, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But in 2 Corinthians 5, he kind of gives a good 
discussion in verses 1 through 8 about life after death, body and soul, uh, about what happens after we die and what happens after the judgment that comes. Before the judgment, and though we die, though we die before the judgment, body into the grave, soul with God, when the judgment happens and resur- or when the resurrection happens and the judgment day happens, body and soul reunited. And he says, I think in verse one of uh, five, he says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, that is our earthly bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, heavenly bodies. Though we die, we have everlasting life that awaits us. Though we pass away, our body and soul, our body and soul shall be reunited and our bodies shall raise again. So though we die, we don't need to fear that thing. For in this we groan, we do, we long for that as we feel that decay. And he highlights that groaningness in verses two through four. But we also have the Holy Spirit, verse five. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. That is, we know that we have a body that awaits, but we also know that we have a guarantee. Oh, we also have a guarantee in the power of, uh, 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 we have a guarantee, which is the Holy Spirit. And so he gives this confidence. Verse six, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, and we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Brethren, death has no victory and death has no sting. Even though we face this many judgment that awaits us, we are not condemned because of Christ. A near creator in life and a near creator in death. I think, again, the purpose of this book and the purpose of what we read in verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes 12 is to draw us in. It's to elicit a response. It's to cause us to stop and to think. And if you're an unbeliever here today, death really is looming. Believe while you can. Believe in Christ now. Find forgiveness in him. You don't know when you will die. You have no clue when that day shall come. Believe on Christ now, and you do not need to fear death. Believe on Christ now, and you don't need to fear the actual judgment day that is coming when all common grace will end. That day is going to be a terrifying day as well. I think that's depicted in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, I know everyone has different views. I think, as I've said, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are just referring to the same time period, but in from different angles. But verses 12 through 16 describes what I think is the final judgment. Verse 12, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll. And when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us. They're so terrified by the coming lamb, they can't hide. And so they want to be hidden by these rocks. They want to be killed by these rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. 
The Lamb of God takes away the sins of his people, but he shall make his enemies his footstool. And those who are enemies of the Lamb will be fearful in that day. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And thankfully, we have Revelation 7. Who is able to stand? Verse 9 of 7. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, which no one could, uh, uh, of all nations with tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Those who are in Christ shall stand on that day. Christ is our hope in life. Christ is our hope in death. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for how real you are in your word and how you show forth the seriousness and the sadness and the judgment that is involved in dying. And we know, oh, God, it was because of our wickedness that we deserve such death. We know, oh, God, it's because of our vileness that we deserve eternal death Yet we are thankful, O God, for Christ who bore our sins upon him, that he had the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out upon him, that he is the one who defeated death. He was the one who was raised from the dead as the first fruits, that we might be raised as well. And so thank you, O God, we can say with Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And thank you, O God, that you even prepare our hearts for the time that our day comes. We know that each and every one of our days are fixed and in your hands. And we pray, O oh God, that we would remember our creator through faith in the days of our youth. We remember our creator through faith in the Lord Jesus now. And then for those who are yours and redeemed, may we know your nearness in life and in death. And thank you for that comfort that we do have as that day approaches. Thank you, O oh God, again for all the ways in which you comfort us in your word all the ways in which you uplift, up, uh, uplift us in your word, even in an eerie sort of passage like this. Thank you, O oh God, that you're the one uh, who has created all things and the, you're the one who redeems sinners in Christ. So we pray, O oh God, you'd give us comfort this day as your saints. We pray, O oh God, you'd save sinners this day. And we pray, O oh God, in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.